Hello everyone, this is Pastor Jay Tyler from Holt Assembly of God, and I want to thank you for listening to this broadcast of Life in the Spirit. I pray that you are challenged, blessed, and encouraged as you hear God's Word shared in this message. There's only a couple prerequisites when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. Number one is this, that you must be born again. New birth is the first prerequisite. And then the second is this, simply you just have to have faith. So you must be born again, and you approach the gifts of the Spirit by faith. Those are the only prerequisites there are for operating in spiritual gifts. Now, if you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you may be more inclined to operate in spiritual gifts simply because you've experienced one spiritual promise, and it gives you a more openness towards the things of the Spirit. But again, they're not exclusively available to those who have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You just must be born again, and you must have faith. So any person who desires to operate in spiritual gifts, and they're born again, you can operate in those gifts. So with that said, I don't want to diminish the importance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, There is a deep connection between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the work of the ministry, and we see that represented throughout the New Testament. Uh, Before Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, he said this to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There is a deep connection between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the church. It's, it's, it's something that you, as you read through the verses of Scripture throughout the New Testament, you see that connection between the two. And on the first day of the church, on the, on the day of Pentecost, ten days after Jesus gave this promise, the disciples received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What did they do with that power? They immediately began to evangelize the world starting in Jerusalem, First day of the church, 3,000 people get saved. So there is an undeniable connection between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the church. But now more than ever, we need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Also, the church needs to operate in spiritual gifts. The more effectively, for the more just effectively communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Now some Christians believe the gifts of the Spirit are no longer available and they cease with the apostolic age. And they'll use this vote as kind of, or this quote, uh, this verse, as kind of one of their, the reasons why they believe that. They'll quote really just part of the verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. And where there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. They'll look to that verse and say, the gifts have ceased. And here's the verse that points to that. So will there be a time when, the, when spiritual gifts cease? And the answer is yes, there will be a time. Is that, has that time come? The answer is no. In fact, Paul tells us when that time will come in the very next verse. Look at verse 10. But when that which is perfect, and there's, there's only one person who can match this, has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Jesus has not yet returned to earth. He has not yet established his millennial kingdom. And until that time, the gifts of the Spirit are available and they are relevant for the church today. So listen to what Paul also says uh, about this in Romans eleven nine. 9. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul says this concerning spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one 
for the profit of all. I want you to just look at that word manifestation for just a second. The original Greek translation just simply means to shine forth. To shine forth. And it's kind of like this. The best illustration I can think of is like a flashlight. A flashlight uh, contains this power within it. Uh, you know, we have it today in our phones. You know, we have our flashlight in our phones. But just think about, I always picture this, uh, uh, the, a police officer's uh, flashlight, one of those big, long mag lights. And um, that there's power within that flashlight to generate energy or to, to the energy to, to make light. But that, that light will not come on unless that button is put on the on position or is pushed. But it has that, that uh, power within, and once it's engaged, the power is released and it shines forth. It manifests in light. And we're the same way. The Holy Spirit dwells in us in power. And there are times that the Holy Spirit can use us in powerful ways. He'll manifest through us. He'll shine forth. And that's kind of the illustration I want you to see in that word, the word manifestation. But the manifestation or the gift of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now, the gifts of the Spirit are examples of how the Holy Spirit can reveal his power through us. Jesus said this to his disciples. So with that illustration in mind, uh, that light shining through us, he also says this uh, to his disciples. In verse 14, you are what? The light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, we need the power of the Holy Spirit manifesting in our lives, manifesting through our lives. We live in a very dark world. We, we live in a world that is just, a, op, just the opposite of what the kingdom of God is, a very dark place. And we see that becoming more and more evident. Therefore, the need for light is so incredibly more. And not only that, we need a light that is just manifesting through our lives. I really think that's where the gifts of the Spirit play a, a vital role. So here's the second point I want us to consider concerning spiritual gifts. And it's this. The gifts of the Spirit are not equivalent to spiritual fruit. The gifts of the Spirit are not equivalent. They're not equal to spiritual fruit. They can't serve as a replacement for spiritual fruit. Spiritual gifts aren't necessarily evidence of God's approval. And they can never replace spiritual fruit. So the church of Corinth is a great example. They're a great example of a church operating in spiritual gifts, but they didn't have anything, everything right in that church. In fact, they had a lot that was wrong in that church. Paul writes this uh, to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2. And I think there's a reason why he shares this. Because the church excelled in spiritual gifts, but they had problems with spiritual fruit. That's why he says this, Though I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge and all that I have and all, and all the faith, excuse me, and though I have all faith, so that I remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. What is Paul saying? Love is the virtue He's really trying to encourage the church to engage, to develop. I mean, this church was really focused on the spiritual gifts. There's nothing wrong with that. We'll see that we should be interested. We should have a desire for spiritual gifts. But this church had things backwards. And what they really needed was some spiritual fruit. And again, that's why uh, love is one of those virtues Paul is really trying to encourage the church to develop. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit. 
but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love is listed first, not by accident. It's not haphazardly put there. Why is that? Because love is the key virtue among all virtues. So when it comes to spiritual fruit, love is the key virtue. And it's the one that best characterizes the nature of, of God. Look at this. John writes this concerning the nature of God in 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So this is why it's the key virtue he's trying to develop in this church. Yes, yes, we should desire spiritual gifts, but you need to develop the fruit of the Spirit in your life first and foremost. So the Corinthians were zealous towards the gifts of the Spirit, but they were deficient in the fruit of the Spirit. And the Corinthians, as a body of believers, for lack of a better term, church, they were messed up. They were a messed up church. I'm going to give you just a couple examples. Uh, just as you begin to read the very first uh, opening part of the letter, and remember, this is a corrective letter. Paul is, is correcting some issues in this church. Um, some of the church uh, had become partisan. They started bickering over who's the best apostle, who is the apostle we love and enjoy the most. Some favored Peter, others favored, favored Paul, while still others favored Apollos. And the church became divided over that issue. Here's another example. The church celebrated an illicit sexual relationship between a son and his stepmother. And because they had this distorted view and understanding of grace, they thought this, well, the more egregious our sin, the more grace we get. So let's celebrate this man's act because he's going to receive more grace. It was a perverted view of grace, and Paul condemns them for that. Uh, the Corinthians were, were gluttonous, and they were selfish. And this manifested at the worst times, during their love feast, during communion services. Those who were being first would, would basically just gorge themselves on food and drink without respect or consideration for anyone else. As a result, some were unable to participate in communion because all the food was gone. The elements were gone. People had gotten drunk. People had filled their bellies up and others were starving. Despite all this, these people excelled in spiritual gifts. It's crazy when you think of it. This church is messed up, but they excel in spiritual gifts. Selfishly, some pursued spiritual gifts as a way to elevate themselves and a way to gain honor and respect within the church. Obviously, those are the wrong motives for any spiritual gift. Paul rebukes and corrects the church for their blatant misuse of the gifts. Paul also reminds the church of the importance of spiritual fruit over spiritual gifts. So again, 1 Corinthians 14.1, very first verse, pursue love. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. I mean, Paul's not haphazard about this. He places them exactly the way in the word they should be. First and foremost, pursue love and then desire spiritual gifts. The church had it backwards. They were pursuing spiritual gifts. And this led to them taking the focus off of the real object, which is love, and putting it on themselves. You know, this still happens today in churches. Selfishness can arise, and it com can come with the spiritual gifts, much like it did in the church of Corinth. Here's why, because we're flawed people. We're flawed people. While that's not an excuse, that is the contributing factor. That's why Paul offers the antidote of love to remove that selfishness away from the church and away from the use of spiritual gifts. You know, biblical love, if you think about it, isn't defined this way. It's not defined in terms of getting my needs met because that's the, that's the love that is, is synonymous with this world. It's all about you getting what you want, what you desire, what you need, who can do this for me. 
But that's not what biblical love is about. That's not the love that believers should have. A love that believers should have is not on ourselves, it's on others. So Paul is really trying to get them to focus on that. Listen, when you operate in spiritual gifts, you are lacking love, and it's all selfish. It's all about you. It's all focused on you. And what you really need to do is take this, this aspect of love and put it on others. I didn't come to get, I came to give. So Paul's really trying to reinforce that in the church, and it's a corrective measure. Here's another corrective measure he gives to the church in regards to spiritual gifts. Even so, this is in verse 12, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be done for the edification of the church that you may seek to excel. So again, what's he saying? In other words, when we operate in spiritual gifts, we want to take the focus off ourselves and we want to put the spotlight on someone else. We want to meet the needs of someone else. We didn't come to church to operate spiritual gifts so that we receive the glory, that we receive the spotlight. No, we came to church to give. If we're going to operate to give, we want to give. And we don't need to get anything in return. And it can be confusing to some of us when we see a person who lacks spiritual fruit and then they operate in spiritual gifts. We're like, these two just don't mix. Godly character is the ideal situation, obviously, for spiritual gifts. Ideally, we want people to have spiritual fruit and to operate in spiritual gifts. That's the ideal, and that's what we want to, uh, to encourage, and that's what we desire. But at the same time, we can't look beyond these examples we find in Scripture. There, there are many reasons why God chooses to use flawed people. And Paul reveals one of those reasons why in 1 Corinthians 2, 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, church, it's very easy when this happens. You can have people that are godly, that are righteous, that have spiritual fruit evident in their lives. They operate in spiritual fruit. Sometimes they get a little attention, and, it, and a little bit of pride begins to puff up. So even in the best of conditions and the worst of conditions, the Word of God is very clear. Our faith should not be in the wisdom of of men, but it should be in the power of God. Our faith should never rest in people. Our faith should be invested in God who can empower flawed people to accomplish his will for his glory. God using a flawed person, again, isn't his approval or acceptance of their flaws. Just because God uses flawed people doesn't mean he accepts, nor does he approve of their flaws. That can certainly lead to some skepticism, and I'm sure some of you have experienced that. That you've seen flawed people operate spiritual gifts, and you begin to become a skeptic. And that skepticism, left unchecked, will lead to doubt. And it will debilitate our faith, and we will miss what God is doing. So there's a phrase in the Old Testament that comes to mind when I think about God using flawed people. I'm sure some of you are very familiar with this, this phrase. It's in 1 Samuel 10, 12. Then a, man came, or then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, and this is really what I wanted to focus on, is Saul also among the prophets. Speaking of King Saul. Now if you want a flawed individual, there you go. King Saul was, was majorly flawed. I mean, think about this. King Saul had all sorts of mental and emotional issues that drove him really to psychosis. But yet God used him in powerful ways. We should always judge the content of the gift, but we should never confuse the gift with the person when it comes to spiritual gifts. If someone had a prophetic word and they shared it this morning, as a church we should judge the content of the gift. That should be our focus. We should judge the gift, 
But you know what we do? We often turn that around and we judge the person. And we miss the gift. It's not what the Bible instructs us to do as, as, as the church. We're not to judge the person. We're to judge the gift. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. That's our job as worshipers. We should judge what's being saved. That way we can decide for ourselves. Is this a gift from God? Or is this simply man? Is this a gift for the church? Or is this a gift for me? Or is this a gift for someone in the church? A worshiper, as worshipers, we don't need to judge the person operating in spiritual gifts. That is the role of spiritual leadership. The last thing you should want to do as a worshiper is to develop a critical spirit because it is infectious. And it will cause you to be critical of everyone. You know what? You can do this. Even in the... the, the uh, the role of concern and safety, while well, I'm just trying to protect, you can become critical and you can become detrimental to yourself. For example, in a church setting, if someone prophesies as pastor, that's, that's me to discern whether it's right for the time, right for the place, is it the right message? And if I don't have a check in my spirit, let it go. Why? So I can listen, so I can have a pure heart to hear what's being said. Well, so-and-so is the one saying it. It doesn't matter. Let's judge the gift first. You know, if the person <laughs> delivering the gift is wrong, and that, we'll deal with that. But let's let the gift go first, and we can judge it. You know, if you think about this, this is the natural reaction of man. We find this throughout the, the Bible, and we see that many Old Testament prophets were rejected. They were rejected, and their message was never heard. Why? Because the listeners never considered the gift. They judged the person they didn't judge the gift. And to be quite frankly honest with you, this happened with Jesus. God became flesh and dwelt among them, and they rejected him, and they missed the gift. So we got to be careful when it comes to spiritual gifts that we don't become so critical of a person because they have flawed character, flawed personalities, whatever. Let's judge the gift, and then as a spiritual leader, then I'll take care of the person. But just judge the gift. That's what you're required to do as a congregation. Again, just because a church operates in spiritual gifts. Let's say there, there are churches, I know there are churches in our community that, that are a little bit more fluent in the gifts than what we are. But even if they're more fluent in the gifts, that doesn't mean they're more mature. It doesn't mean they're more Pentecostal. It doesn't mean they're better. And we have a great example. The church of Corinth was not the best church that Paul had oversight over. In fact, I would put them at the bottom of the barrel. They were the worst church based on what we see in Scripture that he had to oversee. They were a church that excelled in spiritual gifts, but they were a church that was poor in spiritual fruit. So if that is the standard, if we think that a church, because they're, they're more vibrant in the gifts, that they're more mature, they're more Pentecostal, then we have to look at the church of Corinth as an, an answer to that. That's not recorded in Scripture. It's not collaborated in Scripture. The gifts in operation at church doesn't verify the character, maturity, or the righteousness of that church. It does indicate this. They have an eagerness and they have faith. A church that's operating in spiritual gifts more than we are has more faith and eagerness than, than what we do. But it doesn't mean they're better. It doesn't mean they're more mature. It doesn't mean that they're more Pentecostal. It just simply means they are desiring spiritual gifts. Now, the gifts in operation at church, again, doesn't indicate, again, of God's favor. It just shows that people are eager. They have an eager desire to be used. So, when some people are used in the church uh, in gifts and others aren't, what's the key reason? Why are people, certain people used in the gifts and, and others aren't? 
And it really comes down to this, a willingness. You must have a willingness to be used in a spiritual gift. You must have an eager desire to be used. Number two is faith. You just have to have faith. Well, I need to have this all planned out, and I need to know that I know that I know that I know. Well, that's really not faith. Because I know people, I say, I know, faith is that I know that I know that I know. And if we should say, I know that I know that I know 99.9%. Because there should be that element of I don't know. And I just need to trust. So they have faith. And the number two is simply they have obedience. They're prompted by the Spirit, and they have obedience. And that's why they are more used in the gifts than others. Usually these people have more faith in the area of spiritual gifts. And that's why God uses them. Again, does that make them more mature? No, it just means they have more faith in that area. And sometimes people who are more spiritually mature, the people that God wants to use are those who are more spiritually mature. But what happens is that spiritual, spiritual maturity also has a way of getting in the way. And it's almost like this false sense of humility sets in. This self-imposed you know, hindrance is placed as, I don't want to be wrong, I don't want to mess things up, but you're the very person that God wants to use. So it just requires faith just requires faith. The gifts of the Spirit are still useful and have a place within the church today. And if you're born again, you genuinely love God, you genuinely love people, take these words to heart as a personal challenge. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. If you're born again, you love God, you love people, this is a personal challenge to you. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. The gifts are for they. They have a use. They have a practice. They have a purpose. Also in 14.39, it says this, Therefore, brethren, eagerly, or desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Now, we can take this example here. Paul's trying to encourage the church to prophesy rather than to speak in tongues. Again, we can take any of the gifts out and replace them because the same principle will take place. So let's say a church excelled in the gift of faith but was deficient in the other gifts. I'm sure Paul would offer the same advice, encourage the church, hey, rather than just in focusing on one spiritual gift, there are nine spiritual gifts that you as a body should desire eagerly to be used in. So like the church of Corinth, we need to pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, all the gifts, and we shouldn't forbid any of the gifts. We should not ban the practice or the, of any spiritual gifts, and we should give an opportunity for the gifts to operate as well. More importantly, we as individuals need to give the Holy Spirit, please hear me, we need to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to operate in spiritual gifts in our lives outside of the church. The gifts of the Spirit are not available only to church people between the hours of 9 and 12. It's not the only time they're available. They're available 24-7. So we have to remember that, that this is not the place, really, this is not really the and I'm not saying we shouldn't forbid, that's not what I'm saying, but this really isn't the place where they should manifest more frequently. I'd rather see us as a church operate spiritual gifts outside of the church more than we ever see them inside the church. Again, I'm not saying the gifts aren't welcome here because they are, but based on the New Testament, the gifts, if you read the gifts and then they're in operation, you'll see the gifts of the Spirit often accompany something evangelistic. Just see the pattern. It happens continuously. Again, am I saying that, that the gifts don't have a place in the church? No, we, we see Corinth. Corinth practiced the gifts. Now, they, they had things messed up. Paul corrects it. So there is a place for the gifts in the church, but the gifts need to appear or uh, take place more frequently outside of the church. 
So here's the third point to consider spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts aren't equivalent to spiritual offices. Spiritual gifts aren't equivalent to spiritual offices. So, for example, prophecy is a spiritual gift. Prophecy is also associated with the office or the ministry of a prophet. However, if you're used in the gift of prophecy, that doesn't make you a prophet. Well, this is one that gets really messed up in Pentecostal churches. Prophecy is a spiritual gift. It's not a spiritual office. A prophet is a spiritual office. You say, well, they're the same. They're not the same. They're only the same when we put them together in our minds the same, but they're not the same. Show you. Pretty, pretty, this is pretty easy to separate. So prophecy is a spiritual gift. It's available to all believers. All believers. Not some. All believers. Will prophets prophesy? They should. But just because you give a word of prophecy doesn't make you a prophet. Paul speaks about prophets and other spiritual offices in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For what purpose, though? For the equipping of the saints, for the ministry, or the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So a prophet, apostle, evangelist, pastor, teacher are divinely called offices. And they are accompanied by an anointing, by authority, and by validation. Now what happens is a lot of people who feel like they are one of these titles will validate themselves. And that usually proves a point. The purpose of these offices is to provide spiritual leadership for the developing of the church in all areas of discipleship, including spiritual gifts. We've allowed an evangelist really to evolve out of the role an evangelist was called to do. Here's what we do. An evangelist comes in once, twice a year. They preach a message. They get the church fired up. They have an altar call, pray for people. They go on. That's, that's not what an evangelist is supposed to do, but that's what we call an evangelist today. And I don't know why. We've gotten so far away from what the Bible says. What is an evangelist called to do? Like all the other five ministry offices, they're called to edify, to equip, to train the body of Christ. There are evangelists who will do this. I think this is wonderful. I see this happening in several folks that I know. Um, they'll do this. They'll come. They'll, they'll schedule three days with the church. Now you say, oh, no big deal. We, we've had that before, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. No, 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 no. They'll come Friday night. They'll meet with their, a church, and they'll begin to uh, lay out a training, and they'll train the church. Hey, tomorrow, Saturday, you as a church, we're going to go out in the community. We have this planned event. We're going to minister to the needs of the community. We're going to go to the, the, the homeless. We're going to do some type of compassion ministry. Uh, we're going to meet a need that is specific within the community. As a, an evangelist, they come in. This is how I want you to, to uh, reach those people. Use as an opportunity to pray with those people, engage with those people, invite them to church on Sunday. Uh, if you feel led, if, they, if a spiritual need comes up, they need to be, uh, need Christ, you lead them to Christ right there. So they, what they do is they train, they pray, they go, they practice ministry, and they come back and they celebrate on a Sunday and invite all those church back to church on Sunday. That's exactly what an evangelist should do in this day and age. Not just come in, what was the old term, blow in, blow up, blow out, whatever it is. That's, that's not an evangelist. That's someone who creates a mess. So that is a great picture of what a church needs in an evangelist. Someone who will train, equip, and release the church. So the church will use events like that to evangelize. I think it's wonderful, and it's something we need to adopt uh, more as churches and more as denominations. I personally don't care much for titles, to be honest with you. Uh, 
And usually when I, when I run into someone and they want to be called a title, it, it just it makes me a little leery. Because again, you don't need to validate yourself ever if you're divinely appointed by God. You don't have to say, I'm pastor so-and-so or I'm prophet so-and-so. You know, you're just simply your name. God takes care of the rest. So a divinely called evangelist, prophet, apostle, teacher, pastor doesn't need to seek titles. Again, it's evident by their anointing. A prophet, though, should prophesy. I think that's a good idea, right? It needs to be part of their, their ministry. But again, the gift of prophecy doesn't make a person a prophet automatically. A prophet is a divinely called office. Again, they should have some type of prophetic ministry. However, a prophet should be equipping the church to do what? To prophesy. And I would even say this. You say, well, that, that kind of gets into weirdoville. No, it doesn't. The a prophet should be used in all oratory and revelatory gifts. So what does that mean? As we go through the series, you'll see what I'm talking about. Preaching, teaching, operating in the gift of prophecy, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. You should be trained and mentored by someone because that's what that office is for. Now, can a person embody all five of those? I believe that, absolutely. Can they embody one or two of those? Sure they can. Why, can't, why couldn't they? We can see that in the evident, uh, evident in the lives of some of the apostles. So it's mentioned several times in the Old Testament about the school of prophets or the company of the prophets. These were people who were being mentored and trained to prophesy. So why would we be uh, afraid of this? Why would we be discouraged by this? This is why we need the five-fold ministry office. This is why we need those five gifts, those, five, those fine offices to train, to equip, to encourage, and release the church to do the work of the ministry. So here's the fourth point to consider concerning spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts do not belong to individuals. Heard this, I, I have the gift of healing. No, you don't. Quite frankly, you don't. And, and the Bible tells us why you don't. They may be used frequently in that gift, but it's not their gift. So someone may say this, usually it's out of innocence and ignorance. But there are some people that just say it as if they actually own and possess that gift. When someone says they have the gift of healing, it often implies what? Ownership. I own that gift. The gifts belong to me, but the gifts belong to the Holy Spirit. The gifts belong to the Holy Spirit, and he distributes them as he wills. You say, why do you say that? Because that's what the Bible says. Verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. That's why I'm cautious when I hear someone imply the gifts belong to them. Or they have some control over the gifts. Because clearly the gifts belong to the Holy Spirit and the control belongs to the Holy Spirit. It's as He wills. The gifts of the Spirit are also grace gifts. Now I'm sure some of you have heard those terms. Where do we get that, that term grace gifts? Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4, there are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. That word gifts the Greek word is charisma. Charisma or charismata. You know, that, that's why we have charismatics. Okay, people who have usually charismatics, and some, not to get to bore you in this, but Pentecostals and charismatics, they somewhat look like each other, but they're different. A, a traditional Pentecostal is not a charismatic. We may have similarities, but we're different. There is a heavy emphasis on spiritual gifts in charismatic churches. So the word, the root word for grace is charis, or from charismatic, or, you know, that's, that's where we get the same word, charisma. 
It's translated as kindness, favor, blessing, goodwill not deserved, something very good given to someone who is undeserving. They're grace gifts. So the gifts of the Spirit are grace gifts. Same root meaning, same, same root meaning as charisma, as charis, as grace. Healing, for example, is a gift of grace, is it not? You ever been sick and need a healing? You need grace. You need God's favor. Do you deserve that healing? No. But it's available to you because God loves you. If you're sick and need healing for your body, God in his goodness supplies that grace in the form of blessing, healing. The Holy Spirit distributes that gift at a time ordained by God, not by the person who's used in the gift. Because if that's the case, do you see how easily the gifts then can be corrupted if it's in the hands of man? Now, we are part of that. We're integral to the process, but we aren't the process. It's not like we walk around, and I know this, and this is very strong in charismatic churches. It's almost like we're many Jesuses. That's a dangerous place to go. You know that, right? Because there's only one God in the flesh. You'd be surprised how this branches off into Looneyville really quickly. So the Holy Spirit distributes the gift at a time ordained by God, not by the person used in the gift. And some would argue this, they possess the gift because I'm frequently used in the gift. And I can understand why they might feel that way. But again, that person has to be able to listen to leadership and listen to the Bible, or they show themselves lacking spiritual fruit. The gift belongs to the Holy Spirit. He may frequently distribute to that person for a couple reasons. There might be a reason why a person is frequently used in a specific gift. Number one is this. If you find sick people and you pray for them, God can heal them. If you don't find sick people and you don't find people to pray for, then God's not going to use you in that process. Pretty easy. Proximity. Some of us don't know people are sick. Or some of this, this. We don't put ourselves in a place where we want to pray for the sick. If you want to see the gift of healing and operation, you have to put yourself amongst people who are sick. So it's just by proximity. The people who tend to operate in the gift, since they've maybe experienced the gift themselves or have actually prayed with someone and they've been healed, they look for people who are sick. And rightly so. We should look for sick people. Now remember, the gift doesn't belong to you. It's not your name on the line. It's not your reputation on the line. That's God's business. So what happened with the gift is sometimes they possess it and they're like, well, I, I need to be more careful with this. No, your job is to do this. Find sick people to pray for them. And let God be God and decide who heals, when he heals, how he heals, why he heals. That's all up to him. Secondly, these people who are used more frequently in certain gifts, especially let's say healing, they have a greater faith in that particular area. Again, that's why Paul is trying to develop the Corinthians. Hey, listen, you have a lot of faith in the area of tongues, but we need you, if you're going to edify the church, and a church said, I really want you to put that same zeal towards prophesying. So it's the same thing. The, the, that church had a faith. They had a confidence. They had an experience in that area of tongues. Paul says, listen, that's great, but there are other gifts you need to venture into. Gifts that are going to more edify the body. So a person doesn't possess a gift because of frequent use. A person operates in that gift simply because they have confidence. They have faith in that area. And we see this throughout Scripture. Even in the ministry of Jesus, God doesn't always respond favorably to the needs of people. If that were the case, there would be no hungry children, no, no one dying in this world. He doesn't respond to need. 
he responds to need that is accompanied by faith. Now, we find that throughout the Bible. Faith is what God's looking for. And if you're a person who has faith, and you're around someone who needs healing, and you pray for them, and you pray in faith, well, church, there's a combination that's taking place there that is very biblical, and that's why you see the gift of healing exercise in those areas. So in the case of healing, Jesus has made the provision for atonement. He's paid for it through his suffering, through his death, through his resurrection. Jesus wants to heal people. That's why it's a spiritual gift. And we can receive and facilitate that gift of God's healing. But again, it's up to God to distribute. It's up to the Spirit to distribute as he wills. God heals people how he wants to heal people. Remember that. When he wants to. Where he wants to. That's why it's a gift. It's a grace gift. It's distributed at the will and the desire of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to being used in spiritual gifts, there is a sweet spot in all spiritual gifts. Because I really believe spiritual gifts, again, they're, they're, they're for the church. They can operate in the church. I'm not saying they, they, but the greater use of the gifts should be outside of the church. Just give you the sweet point where all this converges. When you, if you really want to see spiritual gifts in operation, you have to put yourself in the position to operate in spiritual gifts. So give you an example. If there's love, love for God, love for people, then all right, you're in a good place, right? Now tackle, tackle onto this faith. You love God, you love people, and you have faith. Let's put another one. You love God, you love people, you have faith, and you minister. All right, it's already starting to focus more. Now, you love God, you love people, you have faith, you minister to the needs of people, and you minister to the needs of lost people specifically. You're going to find the gifts in operation in where those all converge. So here's the thing. If you want to be used in spiritual gifts, love God, pursue love, desire spiritual gifts. And keep that in mind. Put yourself in that position if you want to see the gifts in operation. When all those collide, the likelihood of the gifts of the Spirit being distributed is highly likely. We can see that pattern throughout the book of Acts. So many times we aren't used in the gifts because we don't want to put ourselves to be in the position to be used in the gifts. So hopefully this message has given you some guidelines in regards to spiritual gifts because that's really what this was meant to be, an introduction. But hopefully that gives you some guidelines. And there's some just important ones I just really want you to know, because I'm sure you're going to come across this in your walk with God. You're going to run across this with people that, you know, you intermingle with. And I'm not saying you should correct them, but just listen sometimes to what's being said. The gifts of the Spirit do not belong to the individual. They belong to the Spirit. And just because a person operates in a spiritual gift, such as prophecy, doesn't necessarily make them a prophet, because prophecy is a gift. The office of a prophet is a calling. God divinely calls that purpose, person. The gifts should be in use of the church, but they have a greater use outside of the church. So there are some several guidelines I gave you in this message. Hopefully that will help us throughout this series as we move on with spiritual gifts. But remember this, anyone who is born again can operate in spiritual gifts. But there are plenty of lost people in our community, and it's not hard to find them. All you have to do is go to Walmart, Dollar General, gas station, restaurant, anywhere you're out in public. Any place you're going where there's people, there are lost people there. Now, why wouldn't we want to operate in spiritual gifts there? Number one is this. We know people are there who need Jesus. They're in darkness. Imagine this. The gift of prophecy, a word of wisdom, or a word of knowledge in operation. 
once you do this, I know there's times where you're like, I just want to be out with my family, but what better time to be with your family to lead someone to Jesus? Right in the middle of Walmart. My dad talks about this a lot. I'm not bragging my mom up because, you know, whatever, she's on on with the Lord now, but, you know, they would go to Walmart. I don't know if they necessarily went to Walmart to buy anything. I think mom went there just so she can pray with people. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Because there's darkness in Walmart. There's darkness everywhere. So why not just, hey, listen, instead of going to a place and just being so busy about ourselves, why don't we say this? God, if there's a lost person here today, put us into contact with that person. And Lord, give me the gifts, the abilities to minister to that person. Why wouldn't we want to take advantage of that? There are people that are living in darkness that desperately need Jesus. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this message. It was an honor to be able to spend this time with you in God's Word. If you have any questions or would like to find out more about Holt Assembly of God, please go to our website at www.holtag.org and connect with us there. Until our next broadcast of Life in the Spirit, I hope that you have a great day as you serve the Lord Jesus with a grateful heart.